Welcome to this week's edition of From the MLJ Archive, a weekly radio program featuring the Bible teaching ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We are currently listening to the doctor's famous series from the Book of Romans, which he delivered to crowds on Friday nights from 1955 until 1968. But what you are about to hear is just as contemporary as when he preached it. And so let us now open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to the doctor. I would call your attention once more to this great argument of the Apostle Paul in the ninth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, running from verse 19 to the end of verse 24. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O men, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay, of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, we've reached the end of this great argument. The apostle is replying to that suggestion that he puts before us in the 19th verse. People have argued, why does God find fault if it's a question of his choice, if salvation is entirely and only and solely his action. Why does he find fault with anybody, therefore? And the apostle proceeds to answer that question. And we've been following him through the argument. Now, we are dealing with the latter part of the argument now, the part that he develops in verses 22, 23, and 24. In 22, he says, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Why shouldn't he? That's what it really amounts to. God, in the display of his wrath upon sin, is manifesting his power and his wrath and his whole hatred of sin. And he has chosen to do so in this long-suffering manner. Why shouldn't he? That's the question. But then we've gone on to start considering the extraordinary statement in verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory in the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. The apostle's argument, in other words, is this. Everything that God does is a manifestation of himself. In all his actions, God reveals something of himself. Now, way back in the first chapter, the apostle had told us, uh, in verse 19 and following, how God in creation had made something of himself known, because he says, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the creation does reveal and manifest to us God's eternal power and Godhead. You look at creation, and if you have eyes to see, you will see God the Creator, and all the wisdom and the power that he displays in that way. I say that everything that God does is a manifestation of some aspect or other of his character and of his being. And what the apostle is saying here is this, that in the manifestation of his wrath, God is making something known about himself. And in exactly the same way, in the manifestation of mercy, he is making known another aspect of his great and his glorious being. And here the apostle puts it in this most wonderful phrase, 
that we began to consider last Friday night, the riches of his glory, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us. Now, this is a very wonderful thing. I don't know what you've been feeling about all this as you've thought about it and meditated about it during this past week. This term, the riches of his glory, hasn't it come to you as a bit of a surprise to find such a statement, such a phrase, in such a context? How foolish we are as we read the scriptures. So many people say, oh, I don't read the ninth of Romans. That's that difficult passage that nothing there but predestination and the sovereignty of God and so on. Hard and dry doctrine. So many people regard this chapter as a kind of wilderness. And yet here you see suddenly we come across one of the brightest nuggets in the whole of the Bible. The riches of his glory. Have you ever heard anybody when they are talking about Romans 9, referring to this phrase? Isn't it rather odd? Isn't there something wrong with us? That we can ever refer to Romans 9 without saying, Ah, that's the chapter in which we read about the riches of his glory. I wonder how many of us, if we were quite honest, would uh, have to admit that we never knew that that phrase was in Romans 9 at all. And that we thought there was nothing there but this argumentation. And this tremendous statement about the sovereignty of God. Here it is. Well, I say all that in passing. Never read the scriptures casually. Always be surprised for something unexpected and surprising. Something glorious, something wonderful. In the middle of a great argument, suddenly you find, I say, this priceless gem. The riches of his glory. Well, what the apostle is saying is this that God has chosen to make known the riches of his glory in his kindness, his mercy, his compassion toward those of us who are Christians. And what we are now doing is we are trying to look at different aspects of this riches. You see, we are like people who, having been in some sort of desert, if you like, burrowing our way along, following a track, suddenly find ourselves suddenly discovering some great palace with golden doors and we've gone in and we're going from chamber to chamber and room to room looking at this amazing wealth, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the exceeding riches of God's grace. That's what we're doing. Well, now we've started. We've been through some of the rooms. We've seen that the riches of God's glory are shown in the fact that he has anything to do with us at all. If God had exercised only his justice and his righteousness, we would all have been damned. There would never have been such a thing as a Christian. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The whole world lieth guilty before God. And if he were merely a God of justice, he could rightly and with absolute justice have consigned the whole human race to everlasting perdition. And nobody would have any right to complain at all. The mere fact that he's ever looked upon us, any of us, even one of us, is indicative in and of itself of the riches of his glory. And then we looked at the glory of the plan itself, that God troubled about us before the foundation of the world and worked out this extraordinary scheme. The three persons in the Trinity involved and what it meant for them, we've looked at that. And then we looked at the working out of this in the Old Testament dispensation, how God kept it going, the way he handled those children of Israel. It's marvelous. The wisdom and the power and the love of God. The irresistibility of the grace of God. It's all there staring us in the face in the Old Testament if we but take the trouble to look for it. This line that runs right away through God's increasing and developing purpose, the riches of his glory. But now, we come to what is in many ways the central chamber of all in this palace of riches. The riches of God's glory and grace. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me remind you again of the words of Isaac Watts. I think he's put this up perfectly. See where it shines in Jesus' face, the brightest image of his grace. God, in the person of his Son, has all his mightiest works outdone. The spacious earth, the spreading flood, proclaimed the wise and powerful God, and thy rich glories from afar sparkle in every rolling star. But in his looks, a glory stands the noblest labor of thy hands. The radiant luster of his eyes outshines the wonders of the skies. And so it does. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The riches of his glory are to be seen ultimately all concentrated together in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, of course, this is something that no man can describe. It's indescribable. We can but look at it and glimpse at it. You see something of this glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ even in the Old Testament. Every time the angel of the covenant appears, that's who he is, this special servant of the Lord. That's who he is. He's the Lord Jesus Christ coming down in that particular form as a theophany in order to prepare for his eventual coming as he came in Bethlehem. You can find it then in the Old Testament. But of course it's when you come to the New Testament you really begin to see it. This is how the apostle himself puts it elsewhere. He's never tired of putting this. He never comes across this, but that he goes off into some sort of apostrophe. He can't contain himself. Here's one of them. And without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The riches of his glory. Yes, says John, we beheld it. That was 1 Timothy 3.16, of course. There it is again in John 1.14, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Or, if you like, in the first verses of the first epistle of John. It's the same thing everywhere. John begins his epistle like this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. And then there are those wonderful pictures of it in the book of Revelation. Well now, this is what we are talking about. The riches of God's glory are to be seen supremely in the person of his Son. Think of the incarnation. How God sent forth his Son from him to be made under a woman, made of a woman, made under the law. This is the riches of God's glory. Why did he ever come? He came for us to save us. That mercy might be shown to us. The very thing the apostle is talking about. God, he says, is making known the riches of his glory. In and through us, the vessels of mercy. So you see, there it is in the incarnation, the whole coming, the virgin birth. How the eternal Son of God, the Word, the eternal Word, was indeed made flesh and dwelt among us. Was born as a helpless babe in that stable and put into the manger. 
This is the riches of God's glory. And it's all, you see, for us that we might receive this mercy. Oh, I mustn't keep you, but work through it all for yourselves. That's how you see the riches of God's glory. Look at his life. Look at the poverty that he knew. Look at the suffering that he endured. Look at the temptations to which he was subjected. God neither tempteth any men nor can be tempted, but he was tempted in all points, like as we are yet without sin. Why? Well, the answer given is this. In order that he might be a faithful and a sympathetic high priest for us. He went through all that. His father sent him through all that for our sakes. You see the riches of God's glory in that he has done this for us. And then, of course, supremely, you see it in his death upon the cross on Calvary's hill. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingling down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? There it is. Look at the cross. What is it? Well, this is the most wonderful of all the wonderful manifestations of the riches of God's glory. That's where you see the love of God in that he has made his only begotten, dearly beloved son to be sin for us and is smiting his own beloved. What for? For us, the vessels of mercy, that we might not share the fate of the vessels of wrath. It was all done for us, and it's there you see the riches of God's glory and grace that he should ever have done such a thing. But he's done it, and he's done it for us. He's tasted death for us. He was made a little lower than the angels, says Hebrews 2, 9, for the suffering of death. Well, there it is, I say. And then you go on, you see him dying, and you see them taking down his body and burying him in a grave. Buried. Literally buried in a grave. The one through whom and by whom all things were made. And without whom was nothing made that is made. Buried in a grave. And then the mighty resurrection. Here's the glory of God. The master over everything. The devil and hell and death, everything. Everything is under his power. And he raised him again. Why? Well, we've already had the answer at the end of the fourth chapter of this great epistle. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And it's God who's done it all. God in all this is displaying the riches of his glory. And then the ascension over the apostle is repeating what he's already said. He's summing up what he's been saying so gloriously at the end of the 8th chapter in this one phrase. You remember how we looked at it together. Who is, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And there he is waiting until his enemies shall be made his footstool. And that isn't the end. He will come again and receive us unto himself and wind up the whole process, the glory of God, the riches of his glory, seen supremely, I say, in the face of Jesus Christ. But the thing, of course, that the apostle is emphasizing and that I must therefore emphasize is this that the object and the purpose of all this was to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. 
And if we are not thrilled to the very depth of our being at the contemplation of that, I wonder whether we are Christians. The riches of his glory is seen in and through us. All this has happened for us. But wait, we must go on. We now turn and look at the riches of God's glory as seen in the work and the person, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in this connection. And here, of course, there is that great crucial event of his coming on the day of Pentecost and the dispensation which has followed ever since then. Again, something of the glory of God through the Holy Spirit is seen in the Old Testament, how he came upon certain men and gave them certain abilities, architectural and other abilities, how he gave the ability to the prophets to prophesy, to reveal truth to them and enable them to record it and to write it. This is something of the riches of God's glory because it was all done for us. It's all a part of this process. We'd never have had anything of this at all if God had not decided to show his mercy upon these vessels of mercy. None of this would have ever come into being or into existence at all. So there it is. Even in the preparation, we see something of the glory of God in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. You see it even before that in his work of creation and so on. But it's again only as you come to the New Testament that you begin to see this at all plainly and clearly. In John's Gospel, chapters 14 to 16, all this is revealed in a peculiar manner. Our Lord says he's going to send this other comforter and says what he's going to do, what he'll be like and what he'll do, and so on. And it's all a part of this great purpose, this plan, this scheme of God for our salvation, seen then in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But come, let us look at that in particular by putting it under our next heading. The riches of God's glory as they are to be seen in us. We are the vessels of mercy. And as I reminded you last week, the apostle's argument in writing to the Ephesians is that it is in and through us and what he does with us that God shows this aspect of his glory even to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And the ages to come, likewise, are going to see it in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. Very well, then, we must concentrate on this. And the apostle helps us to do so. Listen to the way he puts it. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us. Now then, here's the phrase, afore prepared, which means prepared beforehand. And this is a wonderful phrase. You remember that in dealing with the, the phrase fitted to destruction in verse 22, I told you that we would have to emphasize the difference between that and this phrase in verse 23. With regard to the vessels of wrath, all we are told about them is that they are fitted to destruction. We are not told that God has fitted them, but they are fitted. They've fitted themselves. They're partly fitted by the fall of Adam, but they've equally fitted themselves. And here they are, ripe for the wrath of God and destruction, fitted but not by God. But when it comes to us, the vessels of mercy, what we are told is, which he, God himself, had prepared beforehand unto glory. What's it mean? Well, once more, of course, it's nothing but a kind of recapitulation. It's the apostle summing up what he's already told us in great detail and in a most wonderful manner in chapter 8, and especially in verses 28 to 30. What does he mean by saying that God has prepared us beforehand for glory? Well, partly what he means is this. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow. You see, what the apostle is saying is this, that you and I were Christians, have been prepared beforehand by God himself 
for that ultimate glory. How has he done it? What is this preparation? Well, the first thing is this foreknowing. Knowing us beforehand. Knowing us before we were ever born. Knowing us before he'd ever even created the world. You remember we worked that out together. That is always the first step. That God sets his heart, his affection, upon these vessels of mercy who are to be delivered and who are to be saved. And he does that, I say, way back in eternity. We quoted ample scriptures to prove that at the time. Then, of course, having thus known us in this special manner, he predestinates us. This involves choosing and deciding what he's going to do with us. Now, this to me is, as I've often said, the most wonderful thing in the whole of Scripture, the thing that moves one to the depths of one's being, that the almighty and everlasting God, who might very well have consigned us all to eternal destruction, thought about us individually, were Christians before the foundation of the world, and decided what he was going to make of us. Can you take in that thought that the eternal God has known you in that way? And then he has worked out this great purpose, this predestinating. But I must again emphasize what we had cause to emphasize in the earlier part of this chapter, because it seems to me to be a very wonderful part of this whole process of preparation. You remember the point we made about Isaac and about Jacob. Let me go back again to verses 6 and following. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac thy seed shall be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise accounted for the seed. For this is the word of the promise. And you remember, at this time... Will I come, and Sarah shall have a son? Now, that was God's action. God brought Isaac into being. Because it was a part of his plan and purpose that the seed should be continued through Isaac. So the birth of Isaac is the direct intervention of God. It is a miracle. Then we get exactly the same thing about Jacob. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Same thing again. And you remember, for me just to remind you, we put it like this. God doesn't do away with the natural process in the production of his people. He uses it. But he works his miracle through it. So Jacob and Esau are both in a physical sense, from the standpoint of the flesh, the children of Isaac and Rebekah. But there was this uniqueness about Jacob. God intervened in his production, in his birth, as he had done in the case of Isaac. And my argument is that he does precisely the same with every one of us who is a Christian. We are separated from our mother's womb, as the Apostle Paul himself was, as Jeremiah was. All this is something that God planned before time, and he has brought it into being. Now, don't get confused about this. Our becoming Christians in an experimental sense happens in time. But the whole teaching of this entire epistle is, and particularly this particular chapter, is that God is bringing it to pass and has always known what he is bringing to pass. Very well. This is a part of the preparation. We were prepared even before we were born. It's a great mystery. Yes, but we are dealing with the riches of God's glory. Who can understand his mind? Who can understand his workings? We have again been reminding of that in one of our hymns this evening. Did you notice those words? Let me repeat them to you. Earth from afar has heard thy fame. 
and babes have learned to lisp thy name. But all oh, the glories of thy mind leave all our soaring thoughts behind. So entirely and utterly and absolutely beyond us and our highest comprehension and imagination. But that is what we are taught. That God has been preparing us. He's preparing a people. This new humanity in Christ. And these are steps in this great process. The time came that you and I should be born. And God saw to it that we were born. And in that particular way. There it is. But then we come to the actual calling in time. We've been called in eternity. But in particular we are called in time. You are born and you seem to be like everybody else. And you live a life of sin. And you may argue against the gospel. And you may reject it. And you may utter your blasphemous thoughts. Doesn't matter. A time comes when you are convicted by the Holy Spirit and you don't know why it happened and you don't understand how it happened. You realize that what our Lord said to Nicodemus is the truth, the wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. At a given point in time, and it was known to God before the foundation of the world, you are convicted of sin. And it can happen in many ways. May happen in a meeting. May happen when you're on your own. May happen when you're reading the Bible. It can happen in endless manners, but it's God who does it. He planned to do it. He brought you into this world in order that it might happen. That's the teaching of this chapter. And so you are convicted of sin. And so you are brought to repentance. And so you are converted and turned round. And so you're aware that you're a new man in Christ Jesus. That you've got a new nature inside you. And you're amazed at yourself. Of course, because you haven't done it. If you're not amazed at yourself, you're not a Christian, my friend. Every Christian's a miracle. And he should be amazed at himself. He's got this new life within him. This life from God is a partaker of the divine nature. What am I talking about? Oh, I'm talking about the riches of God's glory. This is what God does to us, the vessels of mercy. And it's in this way he shows this thought of his, this mind of his, this power of his, this love, grace, compassion. Oh, here it shines in and through us. And then it goes on. He puts his spirit within us. And the Spirit, in, Spirit incorporates us into Christ. We are in Christ. He is the head. We are members of the body. And we have participated in him. Crucified with him. Dead with him. Buried with him. Risen with him. Seated in the heavenly places in him. It's true of you. I'm talking about you. This isn't some theory. I'm telling you what's true of you as a Christian. You're one of God's vessels of mercy. And he's showing what he is in doing all this to you. And then, of course, he goes on working in us. The Spirit brings us into an increasing conformity to the image of God's Son. It was all there in the 8th chapter, you remember? Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine it to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and the brethren are going to be like him. Conform to his image. It goes on in this world. That's sanctification. Then you go on and consider how he puts us all into the church which is the body of Christ. And this extraordinary New Testament doctrine about the church. The church is the body of Christ. It's the most marvelous thing in the whole universe. The universe as such creation pales into insignificance by the side of this new creation. She is his new creation by water and the blood. The church, the body of Christ. What a conception. Read these mighty epistles as they unfold the doctrine concerning the church. And you and I are parts of the church. How he breaks down middle walls of partition, bringing Jew and Gentile together. What a work. Is anything more difficult than to reconcile irreconcilables? Was anything harder than to bring together a Jew and a Gentile? Not only to reconcile men unto God, but to reconcile them to one another, but he's done it. 
He's broken down the middle walls of partition. And he's made of twain one new man, so making peace. Here it is. And all that the apostle tells us about the church in particular in the early first four chapters of the epistle to the Ephesians. But there is no end to this, and I mustn't keep you. I'm just trying to give you some headings. You know you see something of the riches of God's glory even in the way in which he just chastises us. All things, remember, work together for good to them that love God. Even when you're having a hard and a difficult time, it may be a part of this glory because God is going to bring you to that perfection, to that conformity to the image of his Son. And he seems to be working against his own purpose, but he isn't. He knows us, and he reveals his love to us. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Have you ever seen the glory of God in your chastisement? We must learn to look for these things, my friends. That's what the scriptures are here for. They're to make us look. They're to give us these openings. And you follow the openings. And the next time you are chastised because of your sin, you stand back in amazement and marvel at the glory of God that though he is so great and so almighty, he knows you. And he's chastising you in particular because you're his child. And there he gives you a glimpse into something of his father heart that you'd never seen before. Well, all this, you see, is a part of the way in which God shows the riches of his glory in what he does in us. That's the argument. In us. The vessels of mercy. And then the final word about this, of course, is this. Which he had afore prepared unto glory. And this is the thing that leaves us speechless as it were. That we who deserved nothing but the punishment of hell and everlasting destruction, we were sinful. We who can say truthfully about ourselves in the words of Charles Wesley, vile and full of sin I am, for we all are. We who can say with the Apostle Paul, in me, that is to say, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. We who can say with him again in that epistle to Titus, a portion of which we read just now, we were hateful and hating one another. What miserable, wretched creatures we all were in sin. Yes, but you see, this is the way he puts it there. And it's just another way of putting what he puts in this verse that is before us. We ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But, after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's what he's preparing us for, I say. He takes us from that position and he's going to raise us to the glory. And this extraordinary way in which he does it justifies us by faith alone, without our works, without even our desire, with nothing. Gives us the very faith itself, gives us everything. And thus in a manner entirely opposite to what men would ever have imagined. We are saved not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And his purpose for us is to bring us unto this glory of which he speaks here. We are the vessels of wrath which he has prepared aforehand unto glory. Oh, we've been over this. I mustn't keep you. But you know, I can't just say we've done this and leave it. I like repeating this. I like to talk about this glory to which we are going, don't you? Can you ever hear of this too frequently? 
that you and I, my friends, are going to be glorified in our very bodies. We shall see Christ and be like him. And we shall reign with him. We shall reign over angels. We shall reign over the world. We shall be partakers of the inheritance with him. We are joint heirs with him now. And we are going to be joint sharers in the inheritance with him. That's the glory. Perfectly redeemed. Body, mind and spirit. With not a trace of evil or of sin anywhere near us. But without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Whole, entire, glorified, even as he is glorified. Very well, says the apostle. And here is his argument, you see. Let me draw it out now. What would we really know of God and his glory were it not for all this? In other words, it is in his mercy to us that the riches of his glory have become known. So I summarize his argument like this. God in his righteous, holy character hates sin and is filled with wrath against it. Is there anything wrong in that? Is there any injustice in that? Have you any objection to the fact that God who is holy, who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, hates sin with the whole intensity of his divine holy nature? Is there any objection? Is there, I say, any injustice in that or anything wrong? Is there anyone in the whole universe who's ever lived amongst men who does not deserve to be punished and to be punished eternally. Not one. Is there any ground of complaint against the manifestation, the making known of the wrath and the justice of God? There is none. God is free to punish all if he so chooses. And if all were punished, no one would be able to lift a finger or to open a mouth. But what if, on the other hand, he chooses and wills to spare some and to save some? Do you object to the riches of God's glory? Do you feel that that is unjust? Has not the God who has a right to damn us all an equal right to save some if he so chooses? Why not? Where's the injustice? Who's been wronged? No one, because no one has any claim whatsoever. Do you want to ask, but why are some only saved? The answer to that is that none deserve it. All should be damned. And therefore God is free to show and manifest his mercy... When he wills, when he chooses, and where and when and in whom he pleases and he chooses. But I can't leave it at this. Why do we always look at one side only of this matter? Why is it that anybody, I ask again as I did at the beginning, can ever read the ninth of Romans and not be lost in wonder, love and praise when he comes to this phrase, the riches of his glory? Because that is the effect that this chapter should have upon us. The surprising thing, the astounding thing, is not that anybody's damned, but that anybody's saved. Nothing but the riches of God's glory could ever have done that. But we are so blind that we only say, is it right, is it just that anybody's damned? It is right and just that everybody should be damned. This is the astounding thing that any single individual has ever been saved. Nothing but this eternal character of God that we've been looking at could ever have brought it to being. What is the difficulty? Well, the difficulty seems to be this, doesn't it? Man in sin has always had a desire to know what he is not meant to know. 
So people ask the question, why are only some saved, and on what principle are some saved? On what grounds does God do this? Now then, let's be clear about this. I don't know. I'll go further. I am not meant to know. I'll go further. I should not even desire to know. Sufficient for me that any one individual is ever saved. It's the riches of God's glory alone, I say, that can ever do that. And having seen that, I've seen more than enough. What fills me with amazement is that I'm in this, and that God has ever had mercy upon me, and that God in his grace has ever made me a vessel of mercy and brought me to the position in which I am. I don't want to know any more. For the desire to know any more is a desire to comprehend the incomprehensible. To understand that which is God himself and which one never can. I imagine that in eternity we shall have the full explanation. But here on earth it is not God's will that we should have it. All we are told is this. That God has a right to condemn all. And therefore, he has a right to do as he wills with all. And we are told that it is his will that some should receive mercy. And be prepared for that everlasting and eternal glory. Which he has made possible for us because of the riches of his glory. If you still want to ask questions, my friend, well, I'm just telling you that they can't be answered and that I'm amazed that you still want to ask them. If you are not overwhelmed, I say, by this thought of the riches of his glory and that he has done all this for you, that he sent his only son from heaven into this evil, sinful world and even to the death of the cross and the grave for you, if that doesn't overwhelm you and make you just fall before him in worship and adoration, Well, then I think you'd better go back to the beginning and ask him to have mercy upon you and to open the eyes of your understanding by his Holy Spirit. If you are still anxious to cavil and to ask your questions and bring your objections, I say it is because you don't know about the riches of his glory, and that's what you need to know. Once you've seen that, you won't ask any questions. You'll just praise and thank and express your amazement and astonishment, you'll say, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love! And can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's the attitude of the men who have seen this blessed glorious truth and seen himself as a vessel of mercy. And so, you see, in verse 24, the apostle finishes the whole argument, even us whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, which just means this. Now then, he says, in the light of what I've been telling you, are you still in trouble over this question of Jew and Gentile? Well, you shouldn't be. The whole of humanity was lost. It was God's will to take hold of a man amongst those in that mass of perdition called Abram, and to pull him out and turn him into a nation and call him Abraham. It was God who did that. But that doesn't mean that everybody born of him is now automatically saved and going to be a Christian. Not at all. The God who chose him is at equal liberty to choose anybody he likes, and he does, sometimes Jew, sometimes Gentile. Why not? That's his answer, finally, you see, to the Jews. Don't imagine, he says, that there's anything special about you as such or anything to recommend you to God or any claim that you have upon God and his mercy. Not at all. A man is never saved by heredity. Never. You're not saved because your parents were children or because you belong to the Jewish nation or any other nation. Heredity doesn't come in at all. That's been demolished by this chapter. God saves every one of us. Every one of us. And that's where you see the riches of his glory. 
that he who made the stars and the constellations and the whole of creation and who handles history and providence and everything else, he knows us one by one, every one of us. And it is he and he alone and nothing else, not ancestry, not upbringing, not good works, not righteousness, nothing in us at all. It is altogether the action of God. And he can do it to a Jew, he can do it to a Gentile. He has made the whole world. He made man at the beginning. And these distinctions are to him meaningless and irrelevant. And so he does it to us. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles. But that isn't the thing that matters. It is the God who always does it to each individual and who is free in his sovereign lordship to show mercy to whom he will show mercy and to show wrath upon whom he will show wrath. Blessed be the name of God. Oh, the riches of the glory of God revealed and manifested unto us, even us, in this glorious plan and purpose of salvation, and supremely in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. O Lord our God, we come before thee, and we feel that Words are poor, and poor expression. Thou knowest our hearts. Lord, our desire is that our eyes may be opened by thy Spirit more and more to the riches of thy glory. O God, grant us such a knowledge of this that we shall indeed be lost in wonder, love, and praise. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall be in the glory everlasting. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.